Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that in times of plenty and times of need, in summer and in winter, that you remain faithful. It's a simple and yet very profound reality that no matter our level of faithfulness or unfaithfulness, you remain faithful. We thank you that you are a God who keeps his promise, who fulfills everything he sets out to accomplish through, his, through your means, and you wrap us up in that for our good. Thank you for this time that we have. Would you encourage us now as we open your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. One quick uh, housekeeping note. Um, Berndt gave you an email address that does not exist. If you try to email Liz at rivercityfargo.org, uh, it will come back to you saying, we don't know who you're talking about. So if you have questions, I already told him, so I'm not, hope I'm not embarrassing you too much. Um, uh, if you do have questions about uh, the event on the 6th, is that what it was? Yes. Um, you can email info at rivercityfargo.org or talk to one of us. We'd love to get you connected. That being said, I also emailed the guy who helps us with our website and said, hey, can we get an email address for Liz today? Liz at rivercityfaro.org. So maybe by tomorrow, if you emailed that email address, you'd get something. But if you did right now, that wouldn't work. All right. Continuing on, <clears throat> we're closing our series this morning called um, What We Believe. Uh, starting next week, um, we'll take a few weeks as we move towards Christmas. Uh, so a series in uh, over the Advent season, looking uh, forward to the birth of Christ that we'll celebrate together. But today, um, we're closing out this series. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and someone from our strike team can give one to you. We started this series uh, looking at the Bible itself as the Word of God to teach us, to instruct us. And then what the Bible tells us about God being triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. The mission of the local church, the uh, identity and responsibilities as disciples of Jesus. We've looked at the gospel, the message of Jesus' life and death and glorious resurrection. That's our core message. We've talked about how the Spirit of God makes the dead heart alive in Christ. We've talked about discipleship, how we're trained up in the gospel, how we're equipped for ministry. We've looked at baptism and the Lord's Supper, some of the means by which God gives His children spiritual nourishment. We've talked about church membership and how we covenant together as a picture of God's covenant relationship with us and how we fulfill our God-designed roles as servants of one another. And today, we're closing our series looking at the last things, the end of time, and here's why. In our series in Hebrews chapter 11, our brother Rich Ferdeen, who I didn't tell him I was going to pick on him, but he's sitting down here, um, opened up God's word for us as part of that series, and he made a statement <clears throat> Drawing from the ministry of a man named Randy Elkhorn, Rich reminded us that life on earth is like a dot. It is limited and brief. And what follows this life is like a line that extends out from that dot forever. So it makes good sense for us to use the dot to prepare for the line. And I think he's absolutely right. If we focus only on the now without considering eternity to come, we are at risk of falling into despair and 
ultimately end up directionless. And unfortunately, the, the whole of despair and the wandering of spiritual lostness or directionlessness leads to destruction. But I'm convinced that if we look at the now, in light of the eternity to come, with eternity in view, we find the power to overcome in our trials, and we find purpose for our lives on earth. So how we view the last things or the things to come give us hope for not just that time, but encouragement for today. Now, there are many things we could cover, and I'm sorry to disappoint, but we will not cover all of the ins and outs of the book of Revelation or of the end of all things. We just won't. We, we don't have time. There, there are so many interpretations and different opinion on, on secondary issues, on non-essential issues, the, the literalness of the millennium spoken in Revelation or the arguments around the rapture of the taking up of the church and some of the ifs and whens and hows. We just can't cover that all today. But we're going to focus our time on what we would identify as the primary and essential components of the last things and hopefully leave with a slightly, Lord willing, clearer picture of the promise of eternal life to come. So the main things that we're going to focus on today, the main doctrines we want to pin down is said in this simple phrase that Jesus is coming again and that he's making all things new. Those are the areas we want to focus on today as we look towards the end. Our doctrinal statement says it this way. We believe in the personal and visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth and the establishment of his kingdom. We believe in the resurrection of the body, the final judgment, the eternal felicity, which is joy of the righteous, and the endless suffering of the wicked. The North American Baptist Conference Statement of Belief says it this way. We believe, it, we believe God, in His own time and in His own way, will bring all things to their appropriate end and establish the new heaven and the new earth. The certain hope of the Christian is that Jesus Christ will return to the earth suddenly, personally, and visibly, in glory, according to His promise. I like how they don't put dates and qualifiers on that. In His own time... And in his own way. Now, you might say, that's a cop-out. And I'm going to say, it's actually helpful. <laughs> because the big idea, the main focus is that Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he will usher in the fulfillment of his kingdom. Making everything new. And that will extend from that moment until all eternity. It's okay to be excited about that, by the way. That's a good thing. I'm not trying to stir up some amens, but you might, if you find yourself today saying some, feel free to unhook your seatbelt and, and join us. So today we're going to look at a couple of passages of Scripture that unpack the reality that Jesus is coming again, that when He comes, He's going to establish His kingdom in full, making all things new, and so that this doesn't just become a theological exercise that we have here in our minds. If it's true that Jesus is coming again, if it's true that when he comes, he will indeed fulfill the promise of the kingdom, what does it mean for us now? 
in the already. We live now in the now. The already and the not yet, the, the life to come. So that we might have power to overcome despair today and purpose in our day today rather than wandering direction, directionless. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 22 to start. And then we'll back to Revelation 21. We'll jump around a little. So, um, so if you need, you can go all the way to the back of the Bible that you have. Um, in fact, if you have one of the Bibles that we handed out, just start from the back cover and just turn back four pages to Revelation chapter 22. Um, in your own Bibles, you may have maps or, uh, or some kind of an index or concordance. You'll just have to flip past those pages. Revelation chapter 22. Now, Revelation was written by, down by the Apostle John. John, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, was exiled to an island called Patmos. Um, of all the 12, uh, history and, and, and legend kind of says that John was the only one who didn't die uh, by martyrdom. He wasn't hung upside down or beheaded or thrown rocks at until he was dead. John was exiled. And while there, while in exile, had a vision from God of the throne room, of heaven, of the life to come, and many, many things. And, and John was told, write this down. So he did. And all the fantastic things he saw and heard, he attempted to capture in a way so that his and our tiny minds could get our, our, our heads around what was actually happening so that we could comprehend. And while there are passages of Scripture in the Old Testament and New Testament that speak of the last things, of, of heaven and eternity and the judgment, Revelation is unique among the books of the Bible in its content, how it came to be inspired and written down by John. It is quite unique. There is not another book quite like it. Now, in verse 16 of Revelation 22, John says that Jesus himself is speaking. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. It's a message for the church. And down in verse 20, if you read down a little further to verse 20, he says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then that's the end of John's writing. Now, I skipped all the way to the end so that we could see what it says at the actual end. And at the actual end of what God has revealed to us through his word is this, Surely, Jesus says, I am coming soon. This is the first promise and the primary one. Jesus is coming again. Now, if you, if you would, you can keep your spot there, although because it's at the end, it's a little easier to find. If you want to flip back to Acts chapter 1, you can. It'll be on the screen as well. Luke is the author of the book of Acts along with the gospel of Luke. And he's recording in Acts, kind of picking up from the life and ministry of Jesus and the disciples. And he, he picks up from Luke into Acts, and he says this in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, so he's telling the story of what happened after Jesus rose from the dead, before he ascended. He said, when they had come together, they asked him, this is the disciples, 
talking to Jesus, resurrected Jesus from the dead, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, he, he said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember, they believed Jesus was the promised Messiah. They were sure They were confident that this Messiah was going to come and was going to restore the glory of Israel, as in the days of David. It was happening in their minds. What they didn't fully understand was that Jesus was building a bigger and a better kingdom than what they had in mind. So in verse 7, he says, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. And it says, as, they, as he said these things, as they were looking on, Luke continues, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Verse 10 says, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now there's a lot, there's a lot there. Can you imagine? Just put yourself there for a second. You're standing there with the disciples. Jesus is ascending into the sky and then is kind of hidden and uh, 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 covered by clouds and you lose him in the sky and you're just watching like what just happened. And apparently out of nowhere, two men clothed in white, likely angelic messengers are like, hey, what are you guys looking at? Why are you staring into the sky? It's an interesting question, isn't it? You're like, did you just not see what, you know, like. But it's almost as if they're asking them a question. They're asking the disciples a question, like, you, you should know this already. I mean, hasn't he already told you that he's coming back? I mean, they don't say that, but it's almost inferred. And you don't have to turn there, but if you, if you look back at Luke chapter 21... Jesus is teaching about the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem. And in verse 25 of Luke 21, Jesus says this, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. Uh, Often in biblical imagery, I think Devin said this early in our series, the imagery of the sea and the waves are images and signs of judgment and wrath. So Jesus is teaching them like, there's going to be some stuff. It's going to happen. And they're at the time going, okay, great. Verse 26, Jesus continues, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what's coming in the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Jesus says this, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus had already told them what's going to happen. So when the angelic messengers in Acts chapter 1 are asking, why are you standing here staring into the sky? I can't help but think that the minds of the disciples would slingshot back to what Jesus had already told them. I I, I think he told us what's already going to happen. Indeed, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He died and he has been raised to life and he will come again in glory 
And from that point forward, the disciples and every follower of Jesus holds tightly to the promise that Jesus will return again just as he promised. So we get to stand with, next to the, with the disciples, kind of hearing the voice of these messengers saying, hey, don't you remember? <laughs> he already said he's coming again. And uh, we can talk more in depth another time about what Jesus meant in Luke 21 when he talked about signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, the distress on the earth, the troubling of nations. Is this something that's getting worse? Are we waiting for a particular series of events? Are we in these last days or are the last days yet to come? We can have differing opinions on that. And again, we're not going to cover all of that today outside of one thing. There's a lot of talk and a lot of theological framework around this idea of last days. And I'm putting air quotes around that in case you're not looking at this moment. Last days, right? And I'm inclined to the idea that when Paul, in 2 Timothy, and when the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, used that phrase, these last days, they seem to be speaking of every day from Christ's ascension to his return. When that phrase is used in the New Testament. Now, there are ways in which to understand that and will there be other things that will happen and what will happen next? Yes, we, we could talk about that. But when Paul says, in these last days, he's not saying something that he, that's so far off that he can't conceive of. He's there. He's living in the reality that from now until Christ returns, we have the same promise. We have the same surety. We have the same window of what we're called to and purposefulness. And so when John writes down the phrase, behold, I am coming soon, Paul believes that. John believes that. The rest of the disciples believe that same thing. And so should we. However, we must submit any and all of our speculation, even theologically informed speculation to what Jesus said in verse 7 of Acts chapter 1. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I think we can put that one in our pocket as well. Wrestling and studying is not bad. In fact, it's good. But the primary truth we need to know is that Jesus is coming back, just as he said. And Revelation 22 tells us he's coming back, from our perspective, soon. So that's the first thing that's important about last things, the promise that Jesus is coming again. The next part of that is understanding what he will do upon his return. Let's go back to Revelation and, and um, this time to chapter 21. It'll be on the screen as well. And although most of the time I, I, we're going to encourage you to, to read along, if you'd like, I also would like to give you the option even just to close your eyes and listen a little bit to, the, to this promise. So again, I'll, I'll leave that in, in your camp. You can read along on your Bible. You can read along on the screen. You can close your eyes and listen. Listen to what John has to say from God to the church in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. When Jesus comes again, he is bringing with him the restoration of all things. This is the one-two punch. The two really significant and essential components we want to highlight when we talk about the last things. That Jesus is indeed coming for us. And that when he does, he is bringing with him this glorious renewal of all things. Now, there is, I think, a third essential component to what comes next. We're not going to unpack it today because we don't have time, but, but for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, for those who belong to Christ Jesus, it is the beginning of a glorious eternity with God. And for those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, it means not eternal life, but eternal destruction. See, the the punishment of the wicked is sobering. It it should cause us to tremble as we consider the holiness and justice of God. And my, my hope is that it actually stirs fresh awe in us for God's mercy. He doesn't need to be merciful to us. And yet he is. See, many of the other components that are wrapped up in these last things are significant, often worth our time and study, but don't have the same weight like the essential and foundational understanding that Christ is coming back. He's bringing with him the restoration of all things. So what began in a garden, God calling it good, was fractured and broken by the sin of the first Adam. And what followed was pain and crying and mourning and death. But now, Jesus is coming, not merely to restore the garden, but to bring it into its full glory, a beautiful and holy city. No more temporary dwellings for God's people, a home forever. What began as a promise in Exodus that God would make for himself a people that he would be their God and they would be his people, would now have its full and final end, that God would dwell with his people in glory forever. And in fact, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth don't need a sun or a moon to light the sky because the glory of the Lord is all the light that we need. And that he would undo all the pain and the tears, undoing death itself. This is the promise of the return of Jesus, that he is coming back and that he is making all things new. This is good news. Amen? 
Now, we don't want to talk about this as merely a static theological idea. This isn't just an intellectual exercise. All good theology is practical theology. So what do these realities, that Christ is coming again, that he's bringing with him an end to tears and pain, that he'll bring full restoration in the new heavens and the new earth, what do they have to do with my today? You see, we aren't there yet. We're still here. And here is hard sometimes. We still deal with death and loss and grief. We get overwhelmed and beat down. You know, when we started, I said there's a concern that if we, if we don't have eyes to see the glories of the eternal life to come, if we don't have anticipation that, that Christ will return like a groom coming for his beloved bride, if we don't have eternity in view, then, then the weight of this world will indeed crush us and will leave us directionless. Maybe you're young enough to still be optimistic. Hallelujah. But the reality is, if we only look at the here, eventually... Eventually, it will leave us in despair. So how does the promise of Christ's return, how does the hope for a new creation actually keep me from despair or keep you from despair? How does it actually do that? The Bible tells us that the life we live now is a fight. Like Paul talks about it as a fight, the Apostle Paul. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, Fight the good fight of faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. There's no guarantee in the, in the gospel that life's not going to be hard. There's no guarantee that in this life there won't be doubts and fears and struggles and disappointments and brokenness and pain and tears. No, we, we taste it. The effects of sin linger here. Live long enough and you know this to be true. And this isn't meant to be cynical or pessimistic or, okay, you're just old, Jake. I do feel that way sometimes. But what remains of the effects of sin in the flesh and in creation, the attacks of our enemy, Satan, who is intent on destroying us, don't have the final say. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, excuse me, verse 18, for I consider the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. How can Paul say that? How can Paul say that the sufferings he's experiencing in this life are almost invisible to the glory that's to come? See, Paul sees a a glimpse of light kind of peeking through the door of eternity. And that light, the little crack of light of the promise to come is so blindingly bright that it literally makes the things around him, his current circumstances, lost in the shadows compared to the blindingness of the beauty and the glory of what's to come. He was beaten, this is Paul, and whipped. He was shipwrecked and left for dead. He was thrown in prison. He was betrayed by those who were closest to him. And he says, none of these things 
None of these things is even visible in my eyes when I look to the glory that's to come. He doesn't say that the pain and the hurt and the grief isn't real. It's totally real. We experience despair, but we don't operate and live from that despair. It's God's grace to us to experience it, but live out of the hope of eternity to come. See, we can't fully see it yet. We walk by faith and not by sight, but we know that God keeps His promises, right? We look back at Christ's finished work on the cross and the empty tomb with gratitude that He would show His love for us in this and die for us. And we look forward by faith at the promise that Christ will come again and the promise that He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that allows us in our current crying, so to speak, to look through the current circumstances with hope. They don't last forever. We know what forever looks like, and so we persevere and overcome. And so I have to ask, because that might sound all nice and buttoned up, But let me ask, where are the places where you really struggle to do that? To look past the circumstances in front of you to see the glory on the other side. I struggle to do that at times. It's been a challenging year. 2017 was particularly challenging. And I thought to myself in my, you know, hopeful, tiny little optimist that lives inside, I said, well, maybe 2018 won't be quite as bad. And then 2018 added layers of grief <laughs> to my world. And I'm not unique in that. <laughs> you, you all experience the ups and downs of life and the experience of, of celebrating one moment and, and grieving loss the next. And sometimes there are times in, in my prayers or in my time in our community group <clears throat> when my only prayer, my only ask would be, God, would you just remind me that you're near? Right? I don't know what to do next. Would you give us wisdom? Just help. Sometimes help's a really good prayer. And God has been merciful. So incredibly merciful. Because through it all, in His kindness... He's given me the ability to see the light creaking through the door of eternity. The glory of the life to come is so much greater. And so in my confusion or in my doubt or in my questions, I'm not destroyed. I'm held. So where are the places that you feel stretched thin? The places you feel weighed down? My encouragement is not to just muscle through or fake it. But are you able to follow the call of the psalmist or the writer of Hebrews to to lift your drooping head? To not only look at the pile of pain in front of you, but without ignoring the reality of what's there, to look up 
And so look further toward the glory that is to be revealed. As an aside, sometimes it's nearly impossible to lift your own head. I I get that. It's too heavy. But know that there are brothers and sisters in community groups, even here this morning. If you're feeling like, that's me, I, I can't really lift my own head. That's why God doesn't put us alone. To come alongside, to walk with us, to help us lift our eyes to see the hope that is ours in Jesus. See, a vision of eternity empowers us to overcome. And the promise for us, for me, for you, especially when we feel weak, is that all who believe in Jesus, all whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, will overcome. That's part of the promise. And it's not just hanging on for dear life and hope we make it to the end. No, there's purpose for us as we look forward to the glory of what's to come. We will be his witnesses. We bear witness to the goodness of God in saving us, in sustaining us in our hardships, in using broken and faulty vessels to make his name known, to minister to other people. You might not have any idea that the grief that you are walking through today, that God in his mercy and in his sovereignty is intending to use that to bring the light of the gospel to someone else or to help them see in their grief that they will not be destroyed. We remind people of the gospel and the kingdom and the hope of the life to come. In Matthew 24, Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This isn't just a checklist. How many more nations can we get to with the gospel to speed up this Jesus coming back thing? Although, I'm on board with that. It's not merely that. It should be a motivation to reach the far corners of the earth with the gospel, But I think the bigger idea here is that while we are here, we have purpose in proclaiming the kingdom. We talked about it last week as an ambassador. Are you breathing today? Then God has purpose today for your life, in joy and in pain, as an ambassador, as one who is giving testimony to the kingdom of God and the hope we have in Jesus. See, unique in the world we have a message that says that we have a hope that is greater than our griefs. We have a confidence in a king who demonstrates his love for dying for his rebel people, exchanging all his riches for all of their poverty, and that he will come again like a groom for his bride. And when he does, he will make right all that sin has made wrong. So we invite, we implore, we persuade, we proclaim, in Christ alone my hope is found. If we focus only on the dot, and not to minimize the hardships of our lives and our experiences, but if we only focus there without considering eternity, inevitably we will drift into despair and end up directionless. But 
if we're able, by God's grace, to look at our lives, the dot of our lives, with eternity in view, I believe we will have the power by the Holy Spirit to overcome and find purpose for our time here. So my prayer for myself and for you and for us is that the Spirit of God would give us eyes to see and hearts that hope in the glorious and soon return of Jesus to make all things new. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that our our faith in you, our hope in you, is not like our faith and hope in temporary things. It's not a best guess. It's not playing the odds. We thank you that because you are faithful, because you have never failed to accomplish your purposes, because you have always fulfilled every promise you've made, that we can have confidence that you will indeed, as you've promised, come again. And that in coming, you're bringing with you the fulfillment of making all things new. We recognize our our frailty, our brokenness, and our shortcomings. We need your work of renewal in our hearts. And we need to see with eyes the the beautiful picture of the life to come. Not to escape, but to find and see your purposes in us here on the road to that glory. So would you encourage our hearts even today that as we look back at the cross in communion, Our hearts would well with gratitude for your love for us on display. And that maybe specifically today as we come to the table, we're proclaiming your death for us until you come again. And so we have the promise of life eternal in view as we take the bread and the cup. Encourage our hearts. Father, if there's any even here in the room today who are feeling particularly burdened or weighed down, I pray you'd surround them with brothers and sisters and others to encourage and build up. Give us eyes to see the hope that we have in the promise of your return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.